I want to thank Michael Miano and the leadership of the Blue Point Bible Church for hosting this conference and especially for inviting me to be a part of it. So grateful for that opportunity to share with you some of the thoughts that I've studied on uh, in regard to the theme of this seminar. Beth and I spent the first five years of our married life right here on Long Island, so it brings back a lot of memories for us uh, to be here and to drive back through New York City again and to see some of the things that we saw many years ago when we lived here. The theme of this conference is how do we walk worthy of what we have the heavenly things as preterist. In relation to that theme, I'll be sharing two lessons. This first one on walking worthy before the end and the second lesson on walking worthy after the end. This first lesson will show how and why the pre-70 saints walked worthy of the great reward they were expecting to receive at the parousia. The second lesson will apply those biblical principles to us today and show how we are supposed to live in the kingdom now after it arrived in AD 70. So this first lesson will set the stage for the second lesson. That is where we will make practical application of the principles we discuss here. We will see that Christians today have just as much reason to live sensibly, righteously, and godly as those saints in the first century. However, it is simply not wise to apply those principles to our lives today until we know how and why they applied to the first century saints. Otherwise, we might make the wrong application to our lives today, just as the futurists are doing in their application of those principles to us today. So in this first lesson, we'll look at how those pre-70 saints lived their lives in view of the soon coming end of the age and the parousia and the arrival of the kingdom. Many of us preterists, myself included, are tempted to think that the holy lifestyle of the pre-70 saints was only appropriate for those Christians who lived right before the end of Temple Judaism. We excuse ourselves from any need to live so righteously today by supposing that such godly behavior was only driven by eschatological concerns, and therefore, since the eschaton has come and gone, there is no reason for Christians after AD 70 to follow a godly lifestyle. But as we shall see in this study, that holy lifestyle is appropriate and necessary for a lot of other reasons besides mere eschatological concerns. In this first lesson, Walking Worthy Before the End, we will look at how they lived and why they lived that way. We will point out the most important factors that shaped their worldview and motivated their worthy lifestyle. It was their expectations of a glorious experience of the parousia and their hope for an immortal afterlife in heaven afterwards, which propelled their zealous missionary work and stimulated their godly lifestyle. We will look at some of their expectations and examine their hope. We will note that while their experience of the parousia was indeed unique to that first century generation, their afterlife hope is something that Christians of all generations share in common. 
we have the same hope for an eternal, immortal life in heaven, and we share their same vulnerability to persecution and the socio-political economic pressures of living in a world that hates God and rebels against everything His Word teaches. It was their holy lifestyle which empowered them to survive and thrive through the great tribulation that came upon them. And it is that same holy lifestyle that we saints today need in order to weather the storms of persecution and the difficulties of living in this ungodly world. As we will see, the pre-70 saints had an additional layer of expectations about what they would see and hear and experience at the parousia, which explains their intensity and their extreme sense of urgency and the radical holiness of their lifestyle. While Christians of all ages are expected to live devout and holy lives, those first century Christians felt that need more intensely and urgently, not merely because they knew the parousia was at hand, but even more because they knew they needed to be spiritually strong in order to endure the great tribulation that was about to come upon them. Only a radically strong faith and holy lifestyle would prepare them and strengthen them for that ultimate challenge. Jesus and the apostles knew that, and that is why they strongly urged those pre-70 Christians to be holy. Let's look at how they lived in order to get the gospel proclaimed to their world while enduring the most inhumane persecution and tribulation the world has ever seen. How did they walk worthy of the kingdom, and why did they live that way? If you have the lesson outline for this message, you might want to follow along with me as I go through uh, the notes here. I'm starting on page 3 now. And this is a section which lists a whole bunch of different lifestyle that the first century Christians uh, engaged in and also discusses why they lived that way. The first text I want to look at is Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 42. It's a, a section that deals with the limited commission as well as what was going to happen to those disciples after Jesus had departed and ascended and put them in charge of the Great Commission. And so, very interesting section about how he wanted them to live and what he wanted them to accomplish while he was gone. And he says, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff. They will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Brother will betray brother to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who is endured to the end who will be saved. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now that's some very strong admonitions and exhortations that Jesus gave to his disciples. And it's just amazing uh, that they were willing to sign on to this. Uh, and we'll see why they did sign on to it later uh, as we look at some other text here in Matthew. But these statements here by Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 are talking about the kind of lifestyle they needed to live in order to get the gospel out to that generation before that generation came to an end. And when he says, uh, do not acquire gold or silver or copper and so on, 
This means the same thing as storing up their treasures in heaven rather than on earth. He tells them to be free from the love of money and the pursuit of wealth. Jesus urged them to sacrifice their houses and lands and property and possessions, relationships, and even their own lives in order to get the Great Commission accomplished during the Great Tribulation of that generation. This kind of holy lifestyle would strengthen them spiritually in order to endure all those things that were coming upon them. In Luke chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus says, So then, None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Let him who has property live as though he didn't. What he's saying here is that we need to give up what they could not keep. Once the persecution started, all of those things would be taken away from them anyway. So he was urging them to sell it now while they still could and while they could still get something out of it. Of course, this is one of those texts uh, that, that the socialist and the communist get their ideology from uh, when it says to give up all your possessions and, and give it to the poor, etc., and redistribute your wealth. Uh, you can see how the socialist and the communist would use this very text. But the socialists and the communists do not realize that this lifestyle was only for times of great distress such as the social and political and economic, moral and ethical and spiritual upheaval that occurred there in the first generation of the church near the end of the age. It was not the kind of lifestyle that Christians needed to live in every age of the church, especially those normal peaceful times of the eternal kingdom, uh, but it was a lifestyle that needed to be lived under those times of persecution and tribulation. In Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave many principles to guide that generation toward life indeed, eternal life in heaven. And he said not to be anxious about food or clothes or shelter, and noted that if we seek his kingdom and his righteousness as our top priority, then all the rest of those things would be supplied to us. Jesus gave all that instruction, not only for their life during the transition period, but also for life in the kingdom after it arrived. He was describing what life inside that kingdom would look like after it arrived. And since it arrived at the parousia, that instruction directly and fully applies to us today. It is always right to seek the kingdom first and to trust God to supply all of our needs. In Matthew 19.21 and Mark 10.21 and some other passages in Luke 12 and Luke 18 and 1 Timothy 6, the apostles and Jesus advise that generation of church leaders and apostles to sell their property and give it to the poor or to the apostles for redistribution to the needy in the church. They sacrificed their houses and lands and property and possessions and even relationships and their own lives for the sake of fulfilling the Great Commission and establishing the kingdom. They could not keep their property in Israel after AD 70, nor even after the Neuronic persecution began in AD 64. The unbelieving Jews and Romans confiscated their property. 
When Christ returned, they were taken to heaven where owning property on earth was meaningless. They gave up all their earthly possessions in order to secure their spiritual treasures in heaven where nothing could corrupt it or take it away from them. That principle applies to us today when we find ourselves in a similar situation of persecution like they were under. In Matthew 19:28-30, Peter had asked Jesus what there was going to be for them when the kingdom arrived. And he mentioned the fact that they had left everything in order to follow after Jesus. And so Jesus says to them, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake, and to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, and st- they're storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Jesus urged them to trade all their material things, which they could not keep anyway, for spiritual things that they could never lose. The only kind of life that is worth pursuing does not consist in the abundance of things possessed. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And so he's showing them what life in the kingdom is all about and how it looks, what it looks like, and and how it's to be lived in the kingdom, especially in that last generation, the terminal generation, just before the end of the age. Well, in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 46, and other references here in Acts 4 and Luke 12 and Matthew 19, again, Jesus urged them to sell all their possessions and give it to the leaders of the church for redistribution to the poor and needy among them. And so they had all things in common, and they had a common purse. And they broke bread from house to house and took their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And so we see here a real redistribution of wealth. And of course, the socialist and the communist like to use verses like this to support their ideology. The pre-70 saints believed the end was near. And they got that belief from Jesus himself, who told them that the end was near and the kingdom was about to arrive. That was one of the reasons they pooled their resources. Even though that eschatological reason no longer applies to us, it does not relieve us of our responsibility to care for our fellow saints, especially when they suffer persecution and hardship like those first century saints did. The church in Jerusalem was a very tight-knit community within the city. They took care of each other and provided for the needs of their widows and orphans and needy. And that's something that Christians are obligated to do no matter what generation we live in. And so when saints are suffering persecution and hardship, especially the church has an obligation to take care of one another. Well, in Matthew 24, verse 34 and 37, it talks about the fact that they would be killed and stoned and crucified and scourged in the synagogues and persecuted from city to city. Jesus warned them about what would happen to them after he ascended. And this kind of persecution and tribulation forced upon them a pure and holy lifestyle 
that would fortify them to endure the persecution and remain faithful. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, Paul urges them not to sleep as others do, but to be alert and sober, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Night is almost gone, the day is near. Let us behave properly, he says, not in carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife, and jealousy, but put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh and its lust. So Paul was exhorting them to holiness in view of the coming test of their faith. He says, don't doze off or zone out. Stay alert, stay awake, stay diligent, and stay focused on the task at hand which was the Great Commission and building the kingdom. Why was it so urgent for them to do that? Because, he says, it is already the hour to wake up, and our salvation is drawing near. This is still a proper lifestyle, regardless of whether the end has already come or not. It is always appropriate for us to live soberly and righteously and godly in whatever age of the church that we happen to be in. Well, in Luke 23, verses 28 through 30, and also Luke 19, 42 through 44, Jesus made the statement to the daughters of Jerusalem who were watching him carrying his cross to Golgotha to be crucified. And he said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breast that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. So Jesus was warning the people there in Jerusalem and his own disciples about what was coming in their generation. These are the very things that happened during the Neuronic persecution and the Jewish-Roman war. Josephus records some similar lamentations from the Jews during the war and afterwards. And this was why it was better to remain single and childless in view of that coming tribulation. Because in those days, when the Jewish war started and when the the church was under the Neuronic persecution, they would say, blessed are the barren, blessed are those who never had children that can suffer in this tribulation and in this war. Jesus was pointing out that The single lifestyle and not having children. If you're married, just don't have any more children because it would only bring more difficulties and hardship in the middle of the persecution and the war. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Apostle Paul adds a lot more details to that kind of uh, lifestyle that Jesus had just outlined there in Luke 23. If you have your Bible handy, you may want to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Here's where Paul says, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. He says, I wish that all men were even as myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. 
Now notice the contrast here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 through 7, with Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Yet Paul says, It is good for a man not to have anything to do with a woman. Now, is Paul out of his mind? Or is he contradicting what Genesis teaches about it being not good for a man to be alone, that he needs a wife? What in the world is Paul doing here? Well, he notes that celibacy was appropriate at that time in the first century because of the present distress. It's not appropriate at other times when there's no persecution and tribulation and distress. But right then, at that very moment, in 58 A.D. or 57 A.D., when he wrote this book, they were under persecution. Paul was about to be arrested and sent to Rome to be tried under Nero in less than a year from the time he wrote this book. And so it was because of that present distress and persecution and tribulation that they were under that they needed to live this way. They needed to remain single to avoid having any more children because that would be a real hardship on them when the neuronic persecution struck them. Uh, It would be very difficult for them to have wives and children. In verse 8, he also reminds them to refrain from marriage and or having children. He says, voluntary celibacy for the sake of accomplishing the great commission and establishing the kingdom. There's no evidence that Peter ever had children with his wife. We know he was married. 1 Corinthians here tells us that in chapter 9, verse 5. But we don't know of any children that came out of that marriage. Paul, Barnabas, Mark, Timothy, Titus, and many others evidently did not marry. We never hear anything about them uh, leading about a wife with them in their missionary journeys. And Paul flat out tells us that he was single, he was not married, and was determined to remain unmarried so that he could spend his time preaching the gospel and doing missionary work. However, we do know that Philip, one of the uh, seven deacons in the Jerusalem church, Philip was married and had four virgin daughters. Notice Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 7 and 8, says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. But I say to the unmarried, divorced and previously married, and to widows, that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Widows were unencumbered and undistracted by marriage and were more able to serve and help the apostles in their evangelistic and missionary efforts Cooking meals and cleaning and doing laundry was a great help to them. They probably also, I'm I'm speaking here of the women and the widows who traveled with Jesus and the apostles, they probably also helped with the children so that their parents could listen to Jesus and the apostles as they taught. Evidently, some Christian women who were unmarried or widows chose to remain single in order to help advance the kingdom in that way. The divorced and widowed were encouraged, but not commanded, to remain single in view of the present distress, so that they would be unencumbered and undistracted in their labors to fulfill the Great Commission and establish the kingdom. They went to help 
those missionaries accomplished their missionary efforts. It was a very noble thing for them to do that. It seems that this may have been what Mary, the mother of Jesus, chose to do. After Joseph died, she evidently remained single and traveled with Jesus, ministering to him, it says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 55. There were other women also who traveled with Jesus and the disciples, especially when they were in Galilee and also on some of his trips to Jerusalem for the festivals. One of them was Salome, who was the mother of James and John and the sister of Mother Mary. Was she a widow like Mary, or was she simply taking care of her two sons as they traveled with Jesus? We don't know the answer to that. The point is that many of those Christian women traveled with Jesus and the apostles to help them in their missionary work. And they were doing exactly what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 here is talking about, remaining single so that they would be able to help with the missionary work. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 26 through 28, Paul again reminds them of their need to think about remaining single, just as he is. But he says, If you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Those who marry and have children will have trouble or tribulation in this life. And Paul was trying to spare them from that trouble. Jesus prepared his disciples for this lifestyle when he noted that fleeing from Judea would force even greater hardships on women and children, especially women who were pregnant or who were nursing infants. And so Paul is giving them some good advice in view of the present distress and especially in view of what would happen to them during the Neuronic persecution that was coming up real soon just seven or eight years after he wrote this letter. Paul is only reiterating what Jesus had already hinted at in his instructions to the disciples about their lifestyle in the transition period and during the Great Tribulation. Then he says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29, Time is short. The Pillar New Testament commentary says that this language is very similar to some of the Jewish apocalyptic writings which talk about the time of the end being shortened. And this is like the two-minute warning in a basketball game. That's when the last desperate attempts to win the game begin in earnest. Nothing motivates like a rapidly approaching end with everything at stake. Would they be found worthy at the end? The remaining time was getting short, Only seven more years until the neuronic persecution struck. This was strong motivation to finish the Great Commission and live holy lives so that they would be found faithful and gain their great reward. He says, from now on, this is how we're supposed to live. This means from now on until the parousia. If the parousia is still future to us today then, to be consistent, futurists should be living this way. Because Paul says, from now on until the parousia arrives, this is the way you should live. Hmm. For the rest of the time, from AD 57 onward until the parousia, this was how Paul advised them to live in view of the great tribulation that was coming. 
From here onwards, the distress would only increase, making it necessary to detach themselves from the things of the world and focus on building the kingdom. These exhortations braced them for the soon-coming Great Tribulation. This kind of godly lifestyle strengthened them to endure that tribulation and remain faithful to the end so that they could accomplish the Great Commission. These exhortations can apply to Christians of all ages whenever we face the same kind of distress, persecution, economic hardship, and tribulation that they faced. In 1 Corinthians 7.31, he says those who use the world need to live in such a way as though they did not make full use of the world. Now, it's interesting to see what the commentaries say about this, uh, but we can see an example of it in Apostle Paul himself, who used his Roman citizenship to facilitate his kingdom-building activities rather than using it to amass a great fortune for himself. Now, he could have done that. Uh, He was very skilled in his tent making, and he could have made a lot of money making tents for the Roman army, but he chose to use his Roman citizenship instead to build the kingdom of Christ, and he used his tent making skills to support himself and his co-workers in their mission work, rather than to amass a great fortune. And so Jesus and Paul here are talking about how we use the world in order to build the kingdom. And in that first century generation, right before the end, it was very important for them to be very wise and careful in how they used the world. It's limited engagement with the commercial, economic, industrial world. Only enough involvement with it to supply their needs. There was not enough time left before the end to take on long-term leases or mortgage obligations or start a new business or start a new family. They had to focus all their energies on finishing the Great Commission and establishing the kingdom before the end arrived. It's like harvest time on a farm. Every other activity is laid aside in order to gather in the crops before the storms come and destroy them. They gave up their educational or occupational pursuits and lived like they were the terminal generation because they were the terminal generation. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 31, he also says the form of this world is passing away. One commentary said this language was used in reference to the pageantry of a parade where one group passed by and another took their place and so on and so on, or like the changing of the scenes during a drama on the stage. And that's what's happening at the present time, Paul says. The form of this world is passing away. It's passing us by. It's like the old song says, the times... They are a-changing, and nothing could prevent that change from happening. God had decreed it. It was just a matter of time, and that remaining time was growing short, Paul says. It was only seven years until the Neuronic persecution. The word in the Greek here for form of this world, the word form is schema, and the word world there is cosmos, 
So the form of this world was passing away. This schema refers to the style or fashion of this world. The old forms would not work in the new world. Jesus alluded to this when he talked about new wine bursting the old wineskins and the birth pangs of the new world that was about to be born. Paul said that the whole creation was groaning and suffering those birth pangs in A.D. 58. Things were already in the process of change. The old world order was about to be replaced by a new one. The rich wanted to keep the old forms in place because their wealth and power came from using those forms to their advantage. But retaining those old forms was futile and even dangerous since it pulled them down to destruction with it. Josephus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem occurring at the revolution of the ages, or the turning from one age to another. That's what it means when it talks about the form of this world is passing away. Then in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 through 35, Paul says, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his or her spouse, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, Paul here is not giving them instruction for every age of the church. He's talking about a very specific time frame there, right before the end. When time was short, the form of this world was passing away, they were under heavy persecution, heavy financial pressure, etc. I mean, they were really in a serious time of distress, and Paul is telling them how they need to live their lives in order to survive that time of distress. He wanted them to be free from the cares of this world as much as possible so that they could more easily focus undistracted on the things of the Lord and be pleasing to Him and accomplish the great commission that needed to be accomplished. Paul doesn't say this to put them under more restrictions, but rather simply to help single Christians stay free of the concerns and distractions of married and family life so that they could more easily focus on preaching and building the kingdom. The Neuronic persecution was coming soon, and it would be a terrifying test of their faith. Their faith and hope needed to be as strong as possible before that test came. This lifestyle of remaining single and not having any more kids would strengthen them spiritually and enable them to endure it. During the neuronic persecution, it was tough on married men to watch their wives and children being tortured and killed right in front of them. And fleeing from persecution was also extremely difficult with women and children, especially if those women were pregnant and those children were nursing. It was just very difficult to flee. It was extreme hardship. Many of them didn't survive it. 
And so Paul is giving them some really good advice here on how to live in preparation for the coming tribulation. Since time was short and the persecution was heating up, they needed to remain single and spend their remaining time building the kingdom. The cares of this world were distracting them and dividing their attention. Jesus said that they could not serve God and mammon both. It was a conflict of interest. If they seek the kingdom first, the rest of their concerns would take care of themselves. They had to make some tough choices. The things of the world could not be retained anyway. They were about to pass away. They were in the process of passing away at the very time Paul wrote this letter to them. And clinging to those things when they were ripped out of their hands would only injure them worse. It's better to let go of them now when it would not hurt as much. The tribulation was about to get much worse. It was like lifeboat survival decisions. Jettison anything that is not needed for survival. Give away what you cannot keep in order to gain what you can never lose. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, We have a right as apostles and missionaries. We have a right to refrain from working. But we do not use this right so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And so what he's pointing out here is that even though missionaries like him had the right to be fully supported in his missionary work, he did not always use that right if it might hinder the gospel. He worked with his own hands on numerous occasions in order to cover his own expenses in order to expedite the gospel. In Acts 14, verse 22, it tells us that Apostle Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So the reason they needed to be strong in the faith and walk worthy and live such worthy lives was so that they could endure the coming tribulations and be found worthy of entering into the kingdom when it arrived. In Romans 8, verses 18 to 25, Paul said to the Roman church, just six years before the Neuronic persecution struck right there in Rome, to the very people he's writing to here in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and following, he says to them, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is about to be revealed to us. Now that's a staggering statement when you think about the implications of it. He's writing to a, the church in Rome who was going to suffer the most horrifying persecution anyone could ever imagine. And yet he says that those sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is about to be revealed to us at the parousia. Now think about that. Those sufferings were horrendous, horrible. And yet the reward that they would get at the parousia would far outweigh those things by comparison. Not worthy to be compared with the glory that's about to be revealed to us. Now was that motivation to live faithful? You bet it was. Those saints were willing to be fed to the lions in order to gain that great reward 
that Jesus and the apostles held out to them. This was an eschatological motivation for living holy lives and remaining faithful even during that horrible persecution. Those last eight years before the end were full of persecution and tribulation. Paul referred to it as the sufferings of this present time and shows how his fellow saints should view those sufferings from a Christian perspective. The book of Acts shows that Paul's suffering was horrendous, and the saints were only six years away from the outbreak of the Nemronic persecution. Yet Paul raises their heads and points their eyes to see the even greater glories to be gained by enduring all those things and keeping the faith. Paul is not brushing off those sufferings as insignificant, but rather he's showing how much more glorious their rewards would be by comparison. The sufferings were intense and hard to handle, but their glorious reward at the parousia would more than compensate for it. The glorious things they would experience at the end were infinitely greater than all of the sufferings combined. This changed their motivation from fearful dread of suffering to an indomitable hope for an even more glorious reward. What does that tell us about the glories they would see and hear and experience at the parousia? It certainly would not arrive without their awareness. They would know about it and experience those blessings in a cognitive way. Surely they got those rewards at the parousia, so why didn't they talk about it afterwards? And if they did not experience those things that they were expecting to, why weren't they complaining about it afterwards? Yet all we hear from them after 70 AD is deafening silence. Why didn't they speak up and talk about it? Were they silent because they were absent? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, Apostle Paul, I believe, who is the writer of the book of Hebrews, uh, urges those Christians to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That holy lifestyle of sanctification strengthened them to endure the tribulation and thus enable them to see the Lord at his coming. Notice the connection here between sanctification and seeing the Lord at his parousia. Their heavenly rewards depended on their holy lifestyle on earth. And the greater those rewards are, the more motivation there is to be holy. Which hope would motivate them more, going to heaven and seeing the Lord, or remaining on earth not even aware that he had come? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, John says, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. This purity of lifestyle, or walking worthy, gave them the strength to endure the present distress and the coming great tribulation. John says, everyone who has this hope of receiving a new immortal body and dwelling forever in heaven purifies himself. And only a great reward like this could outweigh their fear of persecution and death and motivate them to live worthily of it. 
John wrote this in 62 AD, a mere two years before the Neuronic persecution struck. The persecution was already heating up. It would take a huge hope of experiencing a glorious reward to motivate them at this time when the persecution was becoming so intense. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, along with Romans 8, verse 19, both Peter and Paul here talk about their hope. Notice Peter says that they had fixed their hope completely on the grace that was about to be brought to them at the parousia, and that they waited anxiously and expectantly for it. And notice that. They fixed their hope completely on it. They were waiting anxiously for it and expectantly for it. They were expecting some things. They fixed their hope completely on it. They lived in expectation of experiencing the parousia and fixed their hope completely on the grace that would be brought to them at that time. Those expectations were a very significant factor in their motivation to live worthy lives. It was not the only factor, but it was a major factor, especially for those first century saints. And those first century saints desperately needed those promises of a great reward to bolster their endurance in the face of such a great tribulation. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 29, when Jesus had warned them about what was to come in their generation, Peter wanted to know what kind of reward he would get in exchange for leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. And Jesus exceeded Peter's expectations by promising the twelve that they would sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes. And when Paul was caught up to the third heaven and heard indescribable things, he was forever afterwards aware of the incomparable glory that was about to be revealed to them at the parousia. The apostles knew that the reward would be worth infinitely more than all the sufferings they would have to go through. That is why they fixed their hope completely on it. Their holy lives were significantly motivated by their expectations and their hope. Did they get what they were hoping for? Did they know they got it? Did they experience it in a cognitive way? Why didn't they talk about it afterwards? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That means he's purified himself and become sanctified. Well, this reference to suffering in the flesh is not just referring to death, but to all forms of fleshly suffering that was inflicted on them during the persecution. That suffering had a soul-purifying and faith-strengthening effect on the saints. Prosperity tends to corrupt and weaken us spiritually, but suffering purifies and strengthens. It's like the old saying, difficult times bring out the best in people. Godly discipline and righteous character are formed in the crucible of suffering. No pain, no gain. The right way to respond to persecution and suffering is to cease from sin. 
quit our love affair with it and draw close to God. Suffering forces us to do that. This strengthened them to endure and overcome the suffering and death of the Great Tribulation. Well, in summary, uh, we've seen a lot of the reasons why those first century saints lived the way they did. Why did they walk worthy? What was it that motivated them to live holy and endure all things faithfully? It was their expectations and their worldview and their afterlife hope. Throughout our look at those texts, we saw that their motivation was very complex. It was not just eschatology which moved them toward sanctification. There were a lot of factors, most of which still apply to all Christians of all generations, some of which are gospel proclamation reasons. Uh, It's always appropriate for us to preach the gospel, no matter what generation of the church we live in. And so, in order to proclaim the gospel, we need to be living holy lives to adorn the gospel. It was also kingdom-building reasons. They lived worthy lives in order to build the kingdom. And there was a persecution reason, and we can have that same reason today. The church is being persecuted all over this world. The Voice of Martyrs broadcast talks about that constantly. Those Christians who are under persecution live very worthy lives. Anytime there's a a change in the world conditions, like the changing of the world order, like there was in the first century, uh, those distressing conditions of change imposed upon us by the world brings a lot of hardship and distress. And we need to live holy lives in order to respond appropriately to those times of distress. And of course, there was eschatological reasons why they lived that way, and those don't really apply to us because the time of fulfillment has already come and gone, and the parousia has already happened. They wanted to be found worthy at the end, having accomplished the Great Commission and established the kingdom, while suffering great tribulation and hardship, and they were expecting to experience the great reward that was promised if they did accomplish that great commission. And so there's a lot of factors that motivated them to live worthy lives in the first century, and most of those reasons still apply to us today. Well, what were they expecting and hoping for, which motivated them to live such holy lives. After hearing Jesus say that they were going to suffer the loss of all things and be heavily persecuted and perhaps even killed during the coming generation, Peter and the other disciples asked Jesus what would they get at the end after accomplishing the Great Commission under such extreme tribulation. In Matthew 19:27 through 29, it says, Then Peter said to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake 
will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now imagine yourself sitting there hearing Jesus say that to you, making these promises about what they would receive when he came in his kingdom. Those disciples needed a powerful reward to motivate them to endure that kind of hardship, and Jesus promised it to them. If they had even suspected that this reward would not be seen heard or experienced in any cognitive way, they would have backed away from Jesus instantly. They would never have signed on to the Great Commission if they doubted whether there would be a significant reward at the end. Yet some preterists would have us believe that the rewards Jesus promised were merely spiritual, metaphorical, and non-experiential. I can just hear the conversation between two of the disciples after hearing Jesus promise that they would feast at his kingly table and sit on thrones at his side, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. One disciple says, Wow, did you hear that? We're going to sit on thrones with Christ and help him judge the twelve tribes. The second disciple says, Now don't read too much into that. It's only figurative language, you know. We're not going to sit on literal thrones. We're merely going to participate in that judgment by proxy. Christ will do all the judging. We'll only participate in a spiritual sense because we're in him positionally, relationally, and covenantally. The first disciple pipes up again. You mean that all we're going to get for our hard work under this heavy persecution after giving up everything and risking our lives is merely an enhancement of our covenantal relationship with Christ with no tangible or experiential benefits? Is that enhancement to our covenantal status going to happen without us even being aware of it? What good is that if we do not experience it or even know that it occurred? Well, I hope you can see that those Christians in the first century had strong motivation because they expected a great reward at the coming of Christ. They didn't expect it to be a non-event. They expected to experience something, to see it and hear it. They expected a great reward that would more than compensate for all the sacrifices they went through and the persecution that they went through. Well, did they get that reward? Did they know they got it? Did they experience it? Jesus recognized their need for a clear and empowering experiential hope. He knew they would never accomplish the Great Commission and suffer all that persecution and remain faithful to the end without some very high expectations of a huge reward. It does not do justice to Jesus nor to their expectations to suggest that they lived through those events without experiencing that reward nor even being aware that the parousia resurrection and judgment had taken place. They knew what was supposed to happen. Jesus and the apostles had given them plenty of signs to look for so that they would not miss it. 
They fixed their hope completely on it and longed for his return and waited anxiously, eagerly, and expectantly for it. Those expectations were one of the things that motivated their godly lifestyle. If their expectations were fulfilled, they would have been glorifying God with great exultation, shouting from the rooftops, dancing in the streets. But if they were not fulfilled, they would have been disillusioned and complaining about it. Either way, fulfillment or not, they would have been saying something about it, anything but silent. Yet silence is all we have after 70 A.D. Not a single Christian raised his voice to claim that the parousia had occurred. Why is that? Were they silent because they were absent? Do you catch the power of that? Are Christians of every age supposed to emulate the example of those pre-70 saints? The answer is yes, especially if we find ourselves under that same kind of persecution and tribulation that they had to deal with. But because of the unique way in which they were to receive their rewards, which was resurrection and bodily change and rapture, they had even more motivation to walk worthy than we do. The greater the reward, the greater the motivation to live worthily of receiving it. And even though those pre-70 saints received their rewards in a different way than we do, it is still the same kind of immortal body and afterlife hope that we get. They receive that hope at the parousia, whereas we receive it when we die. But it's still the same afterlife hope nevertheless. And that motivates us to live that same kind of worthy lifestyle knowing that we have the same hope of eternal life in heaven in our new immortal bodies. Those who fail to live worthily will not receive that kind of glorious afterlife. This is a worthy hope that can firmly anchor our souls here in this life and motivate us to live worthily of that far better afterlife that is waiting for us in heaven after we die. Apostle John explained the motivating power of hope when he said, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. And Apostle Paul took it further when he exhorted, Pursue after sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. That is what walking worthy is all about, purifying and sanctifying ourselves. If we have the same hope that they did, it will motivate us to walk worthy of such a great salvation. Thank you very much.